This morning, Bethel Church is going to celebrate communion together. We're going to remember the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. And then we're going to take a little piece of cracker and a little piece of a little cup of juice. And we are going to commemorate the most profound act in all of history. I've been at Bethel Church for 21 years. And if I do my calculations correctly, this is about the 1100th time that I've participated in communion here. And it's possible that doing something 1100 times, you can sort of just put it into uh, autopilot and forget the significance of what we do. And I, for myself personally, I never want to reach that point. I never want to presume upon the death of Christ for me and presume upon God's grace directed at me. I've been a Christian for 42 years, and I never want to forget how good God has been to me, and I don't want you to forget how good God has been to you. So this morning we're going to look at salvation. Salvation which finds its source, the ground of, is in the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at salvation from a a number of different perspectives. Like I said in the communicator, salvation is this jewel that God has placed before us. And there are different facets to that jewel. So this morning we're going to look at some of the different facets of what is comprised in the t- when, we, when we use the term salvation. But before we start, let's uh, pray. Father, your love is amazing. That you would love us is incredible. That you would love me is astounding. <clears throat> May we catch anew. May our hearts be captured afresh by what you have done for us. And may our lives be so turned towards you as a result that we would live in obedience. Thank you for your amazing love. In Christ's name, amen. The first facet of salvation I want to look at this morning is adoption. In John 1.12, it says that for those who receive Christ, those who believe in his name, they are given the right to become children of God. Adoption is the action of God where he makes us part of his family and he becomes our father. One of the things that we need to remember is that when we are born into the human race, God doesn't automatically become our father. We are related to him by virtue of creation. He, we are those who have been his image bearers, created in his image and his likeness. But a transition has to happen before we are, we are brought into his families as daughters and as sons. And in fact, Ephesians says not only are we not children of God, we are children of wrath because of our disobedience, because of our rebellion against God. That's the position in which we find ourselves. But God, because of what he did in Christ, invites us into his family. In adoption, we are called to recognize that God is our father. In fact, the, script, the, the apostle Paul says the, the spirit of God that he places within those who have trusted in Jesus, 
their spirit cries out, Abba, Father. That intimate term of relationship that the nation of Israel used when addressing God. In adoption, we are called to recognize that God is our Father and that He lovingly cares for His sons and His daughters. With God as our Father, we are privileged to have a great inheritance in heaven. There's an old song that the church used to sing, This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. The inheritance that God has prepared for His children is not found on this world, on this earth but is found in heaven, and he says that it is imperishable. It's unspoiled. It's not able to fade. And not only does God prepare an inheritance for us, but he makes us joint heirs with Christ. I don't know how that sits with you, but to think, to, for, for me to think of being jointly, of joined with Christ in anything is phenomenal and amazing. But the scripture says that everything that God has prepared for Jesus, the inheritance that Jesus has, somehow I'm going to participate in, that you are going to participate in, because you are a joint heir with Christ. And being part of the family means that our Father will guide and direct our lives so that we will grow in living rightly before Him. Part of that means that as a Father, He disciplines us. So that when we, our paths deviate from the path that he would have us walk, he gently corrects us and brings us back. In fact, that is one of the evidences that we belong to him, that he disciplines us. So one of the facets of salvation, one of the facets of this precious jewel that God has given us, is that we have been made his sons and his daughters. The second is that we have been redeemed. Titus says that Christ gave himself to redeem us. And and this is, we don't have a very full perspective of what it means to be redeemed because we don't redeem much in our culture. We might pay a ransom for something. If, I mean, we understand that concept. If someone is uh, kidnapped and they are bought back from their kidnappers by their family, there is that element to it. But in the New Testament times, and in biblical times as well, the idea of redemption was fairly well full-blown. Uh, during war, if a, uh, a nobleman or someone of, of important birth was captured, they were able to be bought back from the conquering, from the, from the victorious army or the victorious nation. Their families would get together, the price would be set, and they were able to be redeemed. They were able to be bought back from those who had them in captivity. A slave, and the majority of the Roman population was in slavery, was able to buy their own freedom. They were able to exchange their freedom their, or buy their freedom for a set amount of money, whether they gathered it uh, through work on the side or whether someone actually came and gave them the money to do that. But they were purchased they will be able to be set free. And the scripture tells us that we are held in a captivity and there is only a payment of ransom that can set us free. We are slaves, first of all, to sin. The book of Romans makes the point time and time again that when we yield ourselves, when we offer ourselves, when we choose to rebel against God, we, have, we become slaves 
to sin. And we can see it so prevalent, so prominently in our culture that actions that you would think, I'm only going to do this once. I'm only going to do it twice. Pretty soon you are caught in a web that you are unable to extricate yourself from. We are slaves to sin. And we are in bondage to the devil. 1 John 5.19 says that we are in bondage to him. But the interesting thing is, is that when the scripture talks about redemption, where it talks about being bought back, it never says to whom the payment is made. Uh, during the, uh, the patristic time, the apostolic fathers, there was these huge elaborate, uh, elaborate uh, theologies built upon to whom was the payment of redemption made. The scripture never states it. But what the scripture does tell us what the payment was, what the cost was to, for us to be bought back from slavery of sin and in bondage to the adversary of our souls was the death of Christ. Jesus was the ransom that was paid. His life offered for us so that we could be set free. One of the facets of salvation is that we have been redeemed. We have been bought back from that which kept us in bondage by the blood of Christ and his life. The third facet of salvation that I want to bring your attention to this morning is reconciliation. 1 Corinthians 5, and and the passages, I mean, we're not going to look at them completely, but if you were to write them down and take some time this week maybe to look through them um, so that you get a fuller understanding of what's going on too. Reconciliation means to restore a relationship, to renew a friendship, to make peace between warring parties. And in this day and age, we have a, hopefully, are going to have a, a... pretty significant evidence of reconciliation. When the government gets back to work, when the government finally begins functioning again, it's because the Democrats and the Republicans have somehow been reconciled over the Affordable Health Affordable Care Act. An evident picture of what it means for reconciliation. Two warring parties who their war has had an effect upon our nation, when they come back together, They will be reconciled. But reconciliation presupposes something. And that that presupposition is that there is hostility between two parties. And in the scriptures, it says that man is an enemy of God. And God is the enemy of man. Too often, we minimize the implications of sin. For when we sin, when we choose to take a path other than what God wants us, when we rebel against him, we are implying, we are declaring that we are autonomous, that we are free from his sovereignty. And when someone declares autonomy and freedom from a sovereign nation or a sovereign government, they are considered rebels. And that's what God considers us, rebels. And in the act of choosing to do something other than what God would have us to do, we are declaring that him, we are declaring that he is our enemy as well. We refuse to submit ourselves to him. Sometimes we forget that God's anger is directed towards us as rebels and enemies. But reconciliation is found in Christ, in the death of Christ. 
the initiative undertaken by God restores the relationship and secures the peace. We are reconciled to God. His hostility directed towards us is done away with it because it was directed at his son. And we are brought as adopted children into his family. The hostility ceases as well. Reconciliation is one of the facets of the jewel of salvation. The fourth is forgiveness. Through Christ, there is forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness means to let go, to send away, to cancel an obligation, to grant a pardon. It is to mean that we no longer allow something done to us to be the focus of our focus of our relationship. And the scripture has a wonderful pictures of forgiveness and relationship to us. Psalm one oh three says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. A number of years ago, I was able to, uh, a man that attended Bethel was bringing a boat up the inside passage. And Bruce Whipple and uh, Dan Filoni and I brought his boat up. And uh, Bruce and I would talk. Bruce was a sailor. He had uh, sailed to Hawaii. He, uh, he loved to sail. He, he now sails in, uh, in Washington. But he was a great guy, and we were talking about this particular passage. And he, he said, Keith, do you realize that there is no place that east and west ever meet? If, if you were to walk north, there is a point in time where you hit 0.0 latitude, where you start stop walking north and you start walking south. I mean, there is a geographical point where that occurs. But there is no geographical point where east and west ever meet. If you were to start walking west, you would forever walk west and never suddenly go, oh, now I'm going east. That picture of how far God has separated us from our sin is astounding. They will never meet us again. There can never be a place where we will encounter them. The charges against us will never be brought to bear. The second is that you have put, this is in Isaiah 38, you have put all of our sins behind your back. Now, if I were to turn around, there could be a mass exodus for the, for the uh, doors. You guys could be making faces at me. You could be uh, throwing spitballs. There's a number of things. I have no idea what's going on behind my back. It's the same with God in relationship to our sin. They're no longer before his face. They're no longer accusing us. They're no longer a a charge against us. God has put them behind his back in forgiveness. Micah 7 says, You have tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You guys, most of you guys know that I was a commercial fisherman before I went to seminary. And I can remember the day that uh, when I fished salmon, I typically had a deckhand that fished with me. And uh, if you're familiar with trolling at all, the weights that we used to get the lines down to where we needed to go were heavy. They were 50, 60-pound balls. And they were not inexpensive. Um, And you sort of, you wanted, it was really good if you could start 
uh, finished with the same cannonballs that you started with. That was fairly rare, but it was a nice thing. Um, and one day, my deckhand made a mistake, jammed the hydraulics in full blast, ran the cannonball up through the block, and it popped off. Uh, they had breakaways, so something like that. It would not damage the equipment, but uh, lose the cannonball. And we were fishing at about 120 fathoms of water. So that cannonball is now at 660 feet. There's absolutely positively no way that I can ever retrieve it. I can't stop the boat and go, hey, Stephen, oh, man, you got to go get that thing or we're not going to, you know, or we're done for the day. That's the other picture. I mean, is that, if you can just imagine that cannonball hurtling down to 660 feet. That's what God has done with our sins. He has hurled them into the depths of the sea. So they are no longer accusing us. And then in Isaiah 43:25 it says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remember your sins no more. I'm not sure how it's possible for God to erase the hard drive of our sins. But the point is, is that they are no longer the focal point of my relationship with him. They are no longer between he and I. He remembers them no more. So today, as we participate in communion together, as you take that little cracker and you have that little cup of juice, remember what God has done with your sin. And God did not just arbitrarily decide to forgive us. And we're going to look at that in a few minutes. But he did it in a way that exercised his justice and exalted his righteousness. Our sins have been forgiven. They've been cast to the deepest part of the ocean. And the third aspect, fifth aspect, fifth facet of salvation is that we have been sanctified. Sanctification is the progressive work of God within man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our lives. 1 Corinthians 6 says that we were washed, we were sanctified, and we were justified. There is an expectation in the scriptures that when we cross over the line and place our trust in Christ, when we become a follower of his, that our lives will change. That how we think, what we say, and what we do will somehow be influenced by that reality. Salvation is not just a get-out-of-hell-free card. But it's a radical disruption of the here and the now. It's progressive in that it takes place incrementally over time. As we, who are indwelled by the power of the Holy Spirit, God himself coming up and taking residence within us, as we stop doing what we once did that displeased God and start ordering our lives so that it pleases God. It's never complete in this lifetime. God does not promise sinless perfection in this life. But what he does promise is that progressively through time, our lives will be more conformed to the image of his son. 
that we will look in our moral, in our lives, more and more like Jesus. And it is impossible without God at work in our lives. Sanctification is not pulling ourselves up by our moral bootstraps, but depending upon God who is working within us to set a new course. The Apostle Paul says it so clearly in Philippians chapter 2, where he says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, if he were to stop there, I'm sorry, that would be like pulling ourselves up by our moral bootstraps. But that's not where the verse ends, or the thought ends. For he says, because God is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Part of the package, part of what salvation means, part of what we celebrate this morning in the death of Christ, is that God continues to be at work within us. It's a radical disruption of our lives. I didn't come to faith in Christ until I was 19 years old. And I can look back at my life as an 18-year-old and see a distinct change in how I live now. Not just based upon maturity, but based upon the work of God in my life. Not because I'm such a great guy, but because he's a great God. And I would challenge you as brothers and sisters in Christ to let God have his way within you that those habits and those practices that you engage in that displease him, that he will change you, that he will bring his power to bear, and that you would honor him. And lastly, the last facet of salvation is justification. And I'm going to read and extend a passage out of Romans 3, starting in verse 21. But I want you to know a little bit of the backstory to what the Apostle Paul has brought the readers of his letter up until this point. And his argument up to, his point, up to this point is basically this. All Gentiles are sinners. God's existence, which is evident from creation, has been rejected by them. God's moral law that has been placed within them has been rejected by them. And so they, they qualify as sinners. The second point is that all Jews are sinners. Because God's existence and covenant goodness are evident from Israel's history. Remember, Pastor Eric's been going through uh, the book of Exodus. His existence and covenant goodness is also evident from his written word. But this too has been rejected by the Jews. Because, and it's evidenced in their disobedience. So finally, no one can be justified by doing good. Because we are never good enough. That's Paul's argument for three and a half chapters of the book of Romans. And it is significant because it describes us as well. He's not just, the Apostle Paul is not just talking about someone that lived 2,000 years ago. He's, just not, he's not talking about a group of Jews and a group of, of uh, Gentiles that lived in the city of Rome. He's talking about me. He's talking about you. Because daily we, we fail to do to live what we know. We say one thing and we do another. We think sinful thoughts. We act badly. So this description is of us. And the Apostle Paul has left us at this juncture, at, at Romans 30 or 3, verse 20. He has left us without hope. Because he basically says, 
we are doomed. But then, chapter 3, verse 21, he suddenly reveals hope that is beyond all expectation. Where he says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifest, apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness from God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believes. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or a sacrifice of atonement by his blood to be received by faith. And this is to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, He had passed over former sin. It is to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who who has faith in Christ. Martin Luther, who is the founder of the Reformation, in whose shadow we stand, said that it is upon the, the, uh, the truth of justification, upon this truth that the church stands or falls. Justification is a forensic term. Oops, going the wrong way. Sorry. It's a forensic term. There we go. (laughs) It has to do with our relationship to the law of God, which up to this point has been a source of condemnation. It's a legal term. It does not mean that we are righteous in all of our actions. And this definition is for you in the handout. And it's an important definition. Justification is the judicial act of God. So it's something that God does based upon the law and or in light of the law, based upon the work of Christ. So it's not something that we do, which justly declares and treats as righteous the one who believes in Jesus Christ who justly declares and treats as righteous the one who believes in Jesus Christ. That is, that's the essence of the gospel. That is good news beyond all compare. Because the Apostle Paul has just declared, we are in deep weeds, people. But the good news is, is that God declares those who put their faith in Christ as righteous and imputes to them the righteousness of Christ. Stott, uh, which is probably one of my favorite books in the whole world, called The Cross of Christ. If you ever want to, you ever want to go through this in a systematic way, read that book. God is not declaring bad people good, or saying that they are not sinners after all. That would be a legal fiction. But God is declaring them legally righteous, free from any liability to the broken law, because the Son has borne the penalty of their law-breaking. We stand before God at this juncture, those of us who have placed their trust in Christ, because of what Jesus has done, that we celebrate and remember this morning, because of what Jesus has done, we stand before God not guilty. And not only are we not guilty, but he imputes, he accounts, he assigns to our benefit the righteousness of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin, speaking of his son, 
Jesus, to be sin for us. So somehow my sin is transferred to Jesus, the sinful, sinless one. And Jesus bears the punishment for my sin. And then the verse goes on to say that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Somehow Christ's righteousness is given to me. And the Apostle Paul in, the, in uh, Romans 3 says this was taught in the law, in the gospel, I'm sorry, in the law. How did Abraham, how was Abraham made righteous? Genesis 12 says Abraham believed God. Abraham put his faith and trust in God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's the same for us. From the beginning of God's covenant relationship with the nation of Israel to the end of his covenant with the church, it has always been by trust in what God has declared to be true. When I first uh, was saved, theology has always been a love of mine. I wanted to know what justification meant. And someone says, well, it's just as if I've never sinned. There's some truth to it. There is some truth to that statement. But it is vastly broader than that. Because I always thought, well, yeah, but I have sinned, so how can God declare that I have been righteous? Is this some sort of religious fiction? But it is not. It's not religious fiction because my sin has been placed upon Christ. The ground or the source of our justification is the grace of God, his unmerited favor neither purchased or earned. There is nothing that we can do to require that God direct his mercy or compassion or love towards us. The foundation of justification is found in the death of Christ. He bore the penalty for my sin and turned away the wrath of God because he suffered that wrath in my place. And the means of justification is trust in Christ. If you want to be declared not guilty before a holy God, there's only one way. It's not pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. It's by trust in Christ. And trust in Christ is more than assenting to a doctrine of, or a body of information. You could believe that Jesus lived, that Jesus died on a cross, that maybe even you could believe that Jesus was even resurrected from the dead, I suppose. But that is not sufficient. That is not biblical faith. Biblical faith is not merely assent to a body of information. Biblical faith understands the realization that, hey, this information, Jesus came, Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose again, has import and impact and importance in my life. And then there is the point of time where you put your trust in what God has done. It is so I don't know about you. It's easy for me. I have to constantly remind myself that my performance does not guarantee anything. My acceptance by God is based upon what Jesus has done and my trust in that. I am constantly forced back to that. We can never trust in ourselves. We place our trust in what Jesus has done. And may God call us again and again to exercise that trust. Not for salvation, but for the continued walk within the faith. And because Jesus, or because God saved us the way he did, he is absolutely and completely just. Sin must be punished. Sin was punished in the Son. 
So God can offer to us pardon and freedom. And our response to the reality that we have been justified is to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. How can we not serve God? In whatever circumstance you find yourself, service of God doesn't mean being up here on a Sunday morning necessarily. For me, it did. But not not everyone. Regardless of the circumstances in which you find yourself, you are called upon to offer yourself as a living sacrifice to him. That he could order your life so that he would receive honor through it. Adoption. We have been adopted. We have been redeemed. We have been reconciled. We have been forgiven. We are in the process of being sanctified. And we have been justified. And the ground of all of that is found in what we are about to do. As we remember the sacrifice of Christ. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That in him we might become the righteousness of God. It happened at the cross. And Jesus bids us to remember that this morning. Those who have been asked to serve, if you would come. It's our tradition here that we are all served together. And then we eat and we drink together. If you are a follower of Christ, I invite you to participate.